0: We've been uh, looking over the past several weeks into stories of faith using the New Testament letter to the Hebrews as our source. And there's this very famous chapter in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, that we use as a source. And this letter is different. The letter to the Hebrews is different because it's not sent to a city like Paul would write to the Philippians or the Colossians or the um, um, Romans It's not sent to a city, a church in a city. And it's not sent to a person, like he would write to Titus or Timothy. It's sent to a a specific group of people. He has a a target reader. And this writer writes from a very Jewish perspective. He writes to a Jewish segment of society that's living in the first few decades after Jesus' life on earth and the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension to heaven in the birth of the church and I I want you to try to imagine for a few minutes that you are one of these Jewish Christians who has the opportunity to read this letter okay it's pretty likely you live in one of these large metropolitan areas that are kinda spread out in the Mediterranean world one of these big cities And because of your race, because you're Jewish, you live in one of these small ethnic neighborhoods, one of these communities where you're living next door to other people like you. You share a heritage, you share a tradition, you share a religion, you you share the story of who you are as God's people. And being born Jewish, you were born into a very strict, very regimented, Religion with high expectations. You were taught to obey and esteem the law. The law was your measuring stick. And there were prescriptions and ways to deal with sin if you didn't measure up. And if you were to think about this in our Caldwell context, I think we can find a, a very strong parallel being born into a religion that expects. Uh, devout religious adherents. And you're living in this big city, and in spite of, or maybe because of, your shared heritage, shared history, your, your shared religion. But, but you had heard this message of Jesus, and you'd found the message of Jesus so compelling and so magnetic, and the, the eyewitnesses to the event so, so credible. And the life of Jesus itself was so unmistakably fitting with the prophetic descriptions of who the Messiah was, you chose to become a follower of Jesus. And he showed you how this same God that you had taught, been taught to to fear was actually loving and kind, merciful, and generous. In fact, a lot of what Jesus was teaching, you recognize it's it's a restating of what I have already been taught in my Jewish faith. But it comes from a different foundation. It comes from a foundation of grace and truth. Christ understands me. Jesus understands me. I get that. What I don't get is all the fear and judgment that I had embraced As part of my Hebrew faith. And then comes the Holy Spirit. And somehow, some way beyond myself, I am able to live the life that Christ calls me to. And if you're this person living in this big city with this shared heritage and shared faith, and you've decided, no, I believe in Christ, placing your faith in Christ means you're now at odds with your family, you're at odds with your community. Your community treats you as if you have abandoned everything that you've ever been taught. Maybe your family sees you as a disgrace. You've disgraced your heritage. You've disgraced your history. You've disgraced the traditions. And then you think, oh, yeah. Jesus' family believed he disgraced them as well. In Mark chapter 3, we have that account. And it's still true. Every so often we hear these stories about people who had left the faith that they were born into and quickly found themselves on the outside of everything. People that leave a highly structured religion. Once they leave, they're shunned by what used to be their support system, their community, their families. And if you're a Jewish Christian living in one of these large cities with this shared heritage, shared culture, shared tradition, this letter is written for you. And in your ethnic community, and in your support system, the fact that you'd left the corporate religion to follow Jesus has made waves. And now, every day, you face two harsh realities, two difficulties. First, this isolation that you feel from these people that used to be your support system, and your family and your friends, you, you, you feel that isolation from them. And second, you face the open hostility of, of being a Jew living in a Greek city. Or Roman city. And not only that, you're following a man whose own people crucified him? what are you nuts and now of all things the only find that you can sense a find a sense of peace and belonging is with handfuls of jewish christians who again share the same faith and traditions and religion and upbringing and understandings or it's with gentile believers Gentile believers who you have been taught to avoid your whole life. If you're this person wrestling with your past, wondering what to keep from your past, what is essential from your past, but yet looking forward to the person of Jesus and how he has restated things that have become good news, instead of bad news or different news. And then on the other side are all these people who kind of share this faith, but you've been taught to avoid your whole life. It puts incredible strains on your faith. If you're this person who's struggling to maintain your faith when it feels like the whole world is against you, what do you need to hear? What would encourage you? What is the point of persevering? How do you carry on in the face of this kind of conflict of family and faith and those people? In this conflict, in a greater community, is starting to lead people toward their own death because they're following Jesus. As I was studying this week, um, I came to a, a very obvious realization. We are God's only creation who can appreciate a good story. I tell my dog stories all the time. Does she care? No. But when our kids were little and we would go for a drive, our kids would stand up on the back seat. No, they weren't buckled in. They would stand. They would lean over like this. And they would, this is emblazoned in my memory and in my heart. Mom, mommy, tell me a story of when you were a little girl. Have your kids asked you those stories? What was it like? What was your life like? What was your school like? Tell me about your grandma. We love stories. Stories impact us. And every one of us have our heroes, right? Tom is a history nut. Tom has dozens of heroes out of the pages of history. And every once in a while, he'll share one with us. And it's always appropriate that every one of us have heroes, people we admire, men and women who have endured hardship, or they've been through persecution, chaos, or injustice, and, and they've come through intact. We love those stories, don't we? We love stories of people who, in the face of utter destruction, kept going. People still love the story of Anne Frank, don't they? Or a Helen Keller. Or an Abe Lincoln. Winston Churchill. People who persevered. Even the Bee Gees made a comeback, you know. Even the story of Job. You know, when when you read the words of Job saying... Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Doesn't that stir up some kind of desire and longing and appreciation and hope in your heart? It does. We love the story of Job because of how it is. None of us want to go through what he went through, but we love the story. The stories of people so committed to what they believe that they would not be silenced or distracted. Those stories are powerful. Those stories give us hope to carry on. And in this chapter of the letter, to these isolated Jewish believers in the Jewish Messiah, the writer is spending a lot of time reminding them of the men and women who for generations continue to stand as heroes to us they were heroes to the first readers of this letter because of their their standing in, in Jewish tradition and Jewish heritage and the Jewish story and in the last few weeks we've examined four of these stories and pastor Sharon, Uh, took us through the story of Abel, the story of Enoch, the story of Noah. And then last week we talked about Abram, later to become Abraham. And while he's not, the writer is not finished telling stories yet, he pauses here to make a very important point. And that's kind of the scripture we're looking at this morning. It's Hebrews chapter 11 in the 13th to uh, 16th verse. And again, he's talked about four of them so far. He said, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things know that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In the midst of this storytelling, in the, the middle of talking about heroes, he says, let's just, let's just hit the pause button. He says, let's look at some stories, not from our present, not from our present circumstances. Let's go back. Let's look at what has happened in the past. And these are very familiar names if you were raised in the Hebrew faith. Very familiar names. And these names and these people have been held up as as models of faithfulness and righteousness for generation after generation after generation. There is not any kind of possible way that you did not know these four people. Of course you did. And there's some key ideas that the writer intends for his reader then and now. He wants for us to see. In verse 13, he wants to to see this. We live by faith. He says all these people were still living by faith when they died. We live by faith. Of these noted people, the most re- remarkable achievement of their lives was not their accomplishments, it was their faithfulness. It wasn't that they had, had so understood God and done his will to the point that they received some kind of reward. And that's why we esteem them. The most remarkable achievement in their life was their faithfulness. Not some kind of accomplishment. It was their faithfulness even though even though they didn't see it. They may not have recognized it in themselves. God understood. God saw them living by faith. So how does God see us? How does God see the life that we live? For for a lot of us, sometimes we see the Christian life as as the pursuit of a master's of righteousness degree. Cleaning up our life to that that point where uh, God will see us as righteous. But God's yardstick is our faithfulness. Alicia's going to talk next week about some of the other characters in uh, Hebrews 11. And some of them were kind of messed up. But these people weren't acknowledged because they were messed up. They were acknowledged because they were faithful. God's yardstick is our faithfulness, our diligence, our perseverance to his mission on earth using the gifts and graces and talents and abilities that he has generously given to us. He has trusted us, each one of us, with different gifts and abilities. Are we being faithful to those gifts and abilities? Are they in service for his kingdom and his will? Or do we say, yeah, I kind of enjoy doing that, but I don't think I'm good enough. What are we doing with what he's entrusted to us? The writer notes that even at the moment of their death, they did not receive the things they'd been promised. They had not received what they had been told they would receive. We are such consumers. And here's what I mean. We think if we're promised something, if we are promised something, where is it? When will I receive it? How am I going to use it? Is it of any value? When we are promised something, we want ownership now, right? If we're promised something, if God promises something, Really, now, shouldn't it come during in my lifetime? Why do, we, why do we believe that? These people died not receiving what they'd been promised. You know, if we are the people that proclaim eternal life, does it matter? Next their, their faith was far-reaching. Their faith was incredibly focused on the eternal, on destiny. As Sharon and I were walking in Spain, we, we began every day. Let's see if we can uh, show that, that photograph there. As we were walking in Spain, we would start the day about 6 a.m. Uh, if Sharon was up on time, we would start at 6 a.m. If she wasn't, it was, you know. It's six oh five, right? (laughs) More like eight thirty. No, no, she was very good. She was very good. Yeah, but but we would get up, we would pack up, we would uh, begin every day knowing the day's destination. We would know that the day's destination was a place that we had never seen, only expected. Even when there were no landmarks, as this, you know, it's just fields. No landmarks, no waypoints, and no reason for our confidence other than a map. We believed that we would find it. We believed in a destination. Beyond anything we could see, we believed in a destination. We believed we would get there. We believed we would find hospitality and comfort in a bed. We walked by faith, not by sight. And here's what's essential in faith building. What God promises may be beyond our grasp, but it's not beyond our comprehension. We may not be able to tangibly touch it, but God will give us an incredible understanding, an incredible sense of reality. To what he's calling us to. What God promises is not beyond belief. It's what forms our belief. What he has promised is what shapes and forms our belief. And again, as our faith becomes more fully formed, there is also this growing assurance in us in all things eternal The more our faith grows, the more convinced we are that there is a heaven and there is a hell. The more we understand faith, the more faith is more fully formed in us, there's this growing assurance. I guess the way to say it is, I am more convinced of what will come the day after my death than what will come next week. As our faith is formed, what we place our faith in changes. And as I said, I believe more in the eternal than I believe in next week. Don't you find that to be the case in your faith? Another point is your faith reveals your true allegiance. If you're a Christ follower, your allegiance over and above everything else has to be to your king and your kingdom. More than anything else. More than your hobby, more than your sports team, more than your vacation plans, more than your checkbook. Your allegiance has to be to the king and his kingdom. And even though sometimes our faith may shake a little bit, our our faith may quiver sometimes, our faith will not let us step backwards. True allegiance to the king does not let you step backwards. The writer here says, hey, if these people wanted to take a step back and go back to the old country, they could have done that. But their faith demanded something different. Their faith was always stepping forward. Never backward. And Abram, Abraham, one of the writer's examples, he did some pretty screwed up things, if you read his life. He played fast and loose with the truth sometimes. Yet his faith, even as flawed as he was, his faith was always moving forward. His faith was always growing. Was never in retreat One of the things about Abraham's life that I love is that when he would ask God a question, as you watch his life and his faith being formed, his questions never came out of doubt or fear. His questions came out of a sincere heart. When he had a question for God, it was a sincere question. A lot of times, as our faith is being formed, we come to God with questions that are based in our own insecurity, right? The writer also observes how each of these heroes, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were not destined for this world. He says, they admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. When I was a little boy, living across the street from the church, and the teenagers of our church would be downstairs singing their little folk Christian music, This was one of the things. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? This world is not our home. God has prepared a city for us. They knew. And the more your faith grows, the more you see this too. This world is not our home. God's going to remake it into something extraordinary, something beyond our wildest dreams. The writer says, they're not looking for a country here, but for a country beyond here. But not beyond beyond comprehension, not beyond belief. We can believe it. They were unwilling to go back to what they once knew. C.S. Lewis in this Extraordinary quote. He says, If we find ourselves with a desire in our hearts that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You ever look at the world and think, Is this all there is? And the good news is, it's not all there is. Verse 16. Therefore, you know, be, because their faith is looking forward without any assurance other than God's promise itself, and they're anticipating this kingdom that's, that's yet to be seen and yet to be fully understood, it says God, God was pleased. God is not ashamed to, to be called their God. It's kind of a, a backwards or inverted way of saying God is pleased with this. What shames him is, is those times when we kind of have this start-stop, passive-aggressive kind of fully neither convinced nor unconvinced attitude that God really means what he says. And we, we continue to ask for proof. God, show me. God, show me. Stuart Chase once observed, for those who believe, no proof is necessary. For those who don't believe, no proof is possible. As the wise one Yoda said, you know, it is or it isn't. You do or you don't. There is no try. Now the writer goes on to talk about another 13 heroes. He mentions them by name, including the prostitutes the prostitute who's in this chain of faith-filled examples for us. And he mentions the hundreds of thousands of Jews that marched through the Red Sea. He mentions the faith of the people that marched around the city of Jericho until the walls fell because they were faithful. He talks about people who have been tortured for their faith. And he says about these people, the world was not worthy of them. And again, Alicia next week is going to talk about some of these imperfect people. And the writer of this New Testament letter says, the world was not worthy of these people. They were too good for this world. At the very end of the chapter that we won't get to this spring, the writer sums it up this way. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. None of them received what had been promised. Yet they they died without receiving the promise with a fully formed faith and a fully formed belief that if God said it, I can trust it, and it's enough. Their faith is what sustained them through the persecution, and he talks about, in chapter 11, some of the nastiness of the persecution that was going on in the Greco-Roman culture at that time. We have no excuses when you think about what our, what our brothers and sisters in the faith had to endure. We have it quite easy, don't we, in America as people of faith. Yeah, we get miffed at some of the stuff going on, but really we have a lot, a lot of freedom. Where does your faith lie? What is your highest allegiance? Where do you place the most trust? Are you waiting for God to prove something to you before you fully embrace faith? You may believe. You may have this mental, um, your mind, a sense to this story that he was the Messiah, was a Son of God. Was who he said he was, but is your everyday faith placed in him? Are you skeptical about his promises, or do you feel like God is is doing things in your in your heart, in your mind, that He is shaping your faith, and you're starting to understand like? Uh, like the band U2 once put in a song, they wrote, it has to be believed before it is seen. Can you say that? I will believe what God tells me before I ever, ever see it. God doesn't have to prove anything to me. Is your faith that strong yet? If not, as you come to partake of the elements this morning, the, the bread that represents Christ's broken body and, and the juice that represents uh, the horrific way that he was put to death and the blood that ran from his body, will you pause for a moment and just confess God, my faith isn't where it should be, my faith is lacking. I really can't say to you right now that you are my highest allegiance. I can't honestly say that right this day where we stand that you are my king and I am working for your kingdom. You'll feel better if you settle this. And there's no better time than standing before these elements that represent God's incredible love for you, his sacrifice for you his understanding for you that God is not a god to be feared but a god to be embraced a god who listens a god who loves there's no better spot no better spot it's a place where heaven and earth meet in an incredible way and so we invite you this morning to come and partake of the elements and to to settle To make peace. To make peace for your own sake. For your own future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the testimony of these that uh, uh, were compiled by the writer. We thank you that early church fathers put this in the, the Bible this book of books we thank you that the writer had a, a, a Jewish insight into what's going on in Jewish communities across the Mediterranean world and, and father how they struggled with sensing persecution on both sides father just as being Jewish and also as being Jewish that had decided to accept the Messiah and to embrace His message a good news message a message where God and religion is not a bully but a help Father we thank you for the gift of salvation we thank you that in the whole redemption plan uh, your son Your son obeyed. It's incredible to us, Father, that we are still banking on and place our faith in and trusting in the words of Emmanuel, God with us, that are 2,000 years old. God, they're timeless. And we do trust them. We do believe. And we do believe that there is eternity coming. And we know that as our faith is more fully formed, God, we get a clearer picture, clearer understanding of all things eternal. Thank you for new life. Father, for those that are struggling with their faith, God, would you give them an assurance God, we know that you will, but we ask that you treat them with, with tenderness and care as they come and receive the elements or sit and pray where they're at. God, help them to settle into your arms and into a clearer understanding of who you are and your great plan. So, Father, we thank you for this good day. We thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for your love, compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.